You are listening to Mark and the Cranky Fan. Welcome to the podcast. It's been a while. We've taken uh, some time off, and now we're ready for the 2019 football season. Mark McLeod and Mike Ages with you. Mike, how are you? Mark, we've awoken from our off-season slumber, and like Lazarus rising from the dead, we have arisen for another Gator football season. A lot happier feeling than we were this time last year, that's for sure. So I'm glad to be back, and uh, let's get into it. Yeah, two years ago, it was uh, rather smelly. We probably smelled a lot like Lazarus um, (laughs) after that 2017 season. So, uh, indeed. uh, You know, it's been a a bit of a tumultuous offseason, I think it's fair to say. You've had some – look, all all programs have trouble with kids getting in getting in off the field issues. You hate it when it's it involves a female. Those are the worst. Um, obviously, the credit card issue a few years ago wasn't good either. Uh, another one where, where you've got people uh, sticking, sticking it to other people with their credit cards. Uh, and, and you don't want any kind of, of off-the-field issue, ideally. But, you know... The John Huggins situation was the most recent one. That was the biggest one. Obviously, you go back in the spring with the Jalen Jones thing, which which for Chris Steele was a farce. He used that against the University of Florida when the reality was the kid was just homesick. And he could have saved everybody a lot of time if he just said, you know, guys, this isn't working out for me at Florida. I'm just really homesick. But, but uh, you know, I, I think – there were a lot of fans that would have said, okay, all right, and maybe not accepted it, but would have given him the benefit of the doubt. But, of course, you've had, uh, you've, you've had some issues. Uh, uh, Brian Edwards is gone, dismissed from the program. He's out. You've got, most recently, Jonathan Huggins. You've got Jalen Jones, who was dismissed from the program. And, look, these guys can all say what they want, and, then they, and they have that right to that, well, I wasn't dismissed. It was a mutual agreement. Well, that's fine. Whatever you want to call it is fine with me. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of it. But anyway, uh, get your take on uh, some of the off-the-field stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a bad off-season. We, you can't sugarcoat it. And I think everything that's happened off the field with actually the events that have happened have been kind of magnified and made worse, I think, by – members of the media that use it for an angle and a storyline and trying to perpetrate, you know, whether it's for their own personal gain to make a name for themselves in the national media or what. Uh, And, you know, for example, you know, the five individual isolated events, unrelated events relating to women very conveniently were bow tied together by Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times saying, hey, Florida's had five incidences about it. You know, there is, there is a way to report what's happened, and there is a way to kind of set your own narrative to it. Um, apparently, the story was out there about the Huggins thing, and from what I understand, and, and Mark, you're a little closer to the situation than I am, but apparently the first time it was really brought to Dan Mullen was at that press conference before I, I, I had heard a rumor that they went to Florida and said, we have this, we want to say anything. And they're like, no, you can go ahead and ask whatever you want in the press conference. And he was a, appeared to be blindsided by, you know, the fact that the media did know about this. Um, so I, I think what bothers me about the whole thing and yes, those five guys and they're all gone from the program. Let's make that as, just as big of a headline as the fact that five guys got in trouble or there were allegations or whatever happened. You know, Dan Mullen did everything that he could to rectify these situations. You know, five guys are no longer on the team, you know, without waiting for, you know, charges to be filed, a trial to be happened, you know, unlike what happened up in Tallahassee. But I feel the narrative is being pushed by some people have made it out to be that this is a, 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 a program that's lawless right now and it's a, it's a real culture problem and it's, it's really aggravating and it's something that uh, we're going to have to fight through with, uh, you know, getting like the, a, a better 
feeling out there among what, what Florida football is all about and what this university is. And it's very troubling right now. Yeah, I've known Matt Baker for many years. He's a friend of mine. Um, I wouldn't have asked it probably. I wouldn't have, have approached it the way he did. Mm-hmm. But I, I also I disagree with, with people who, who, and I've seen this even posted today, that he's a Gator hater, and this there, there there's no truth to that whatsoever. I, I've known Matt for years. Yeah. That is not who he is. But I don't I, buy that either. I, I would have approached it a little differently. Remember, for you, if you were to call him a Gator hater, Matt Baker was the guy that was on the case for the Jameis Winston thing. He was really yep. on that because – he was working for the Tampa Bay Times and had some insight into the young lady at Zephyr Hills, the former Zephyr Hills High School girl, who was at the center of all of that at Florida State, the one that was called the cleat chaser and everything else. And and when, in that case, nothing could be further from the truth. The girl was not a cleat chaser. She was not trying to make a name with a football player. Um, that simply wasn't the case. I, I actually did some work for a guy in the Tampa Bay area, a publisher uh, who <laughs> he, he knows the family very well. And he was stunned when he heard stuff like that. But anyway, um, now I wouldn't approached it probably the way Matt did, but, but Matt, I, I think, you know, to his credit, he was trying to, I think, chase down and find out the truth. Again, I wouldn't have quite done it that way, but I don't, as I look at Florida again, Five guys, different situations. Kids are going to be kids, unfortunately. I hate even saying that. But that's the reality of all programs, or all coaches are faced with. Kids are different these days. I just had this conversation tonight with a guy uh, who's very uh, linked in with the Southeastern Conference, and he said the same thing. He said, hey, I'm telling you, kids are different, man. He goes, kids are just very different than they were back when we were in school. Um, The big thing, Mark – Go ahead. I was going to say the big thing, Mark, is that the laws are different in the state of Florida than they are in the state of Georgia, in the state of Alabama, as far as getting official records and arrest records and things. It is a lot easier to find out public information in the state of Florida than it is in the other two states. So, you know, it's very possible that you have a similar rate of these instances at other schools across the SEC and across the country, but. You may never know about it because it may be, you know, records may be sealed, impossible for reporters to get information for public information. So that, you know, makes it easier to say, well, Florida has 15 arrests for X, Y, and Z, and Florida State did this, and, you know, Miami did this and that, where it's just easier to find out the information of what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, and, but again, with, with regards to Matt Baker, uh, he's not a Gator hater. I would I would read his stuff anytime. I think he does a very good job. Uh, but there may be situations where where all of us in the media where we disagree and say, yeah, I wouldn't have asked that question that way, or I may not have asked that question at all. I may have said this. I may have said that. But you know, the question did come up. It was, I, I guess, the uh, second time he posed it to Dan Mullen about the Huggins situation. Um. You know, the bottom line is a few days later, Jonathan Huggins was was released from the program. Or, as his attorney says, there was a mutual agreement. So, whatever you want to believe, um, it's there. I would just say that, that, okay, you can ask the question. I think it's perfectly fair to ask the question, what changed in those few days? But. Dan Mullen seemed to indicate there was new information made available to him, and that's fine. So, so the 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 real fact, the real truth is, he's not a part of the program. And I think based on what happened last year with the tutor, he shouldn't have been a part of the program anyway. So, yeah, and, this, and, and in the long run, thing, they worked out. Yeah, and just remember, we're not talking about a Heisman Trophy candidate that we're trying to protect. We're talking about a backup secondary guy. Mm-hmm. You know, so it'd be one thing if it was like a Jameis Winston where he plays the entire season while they're waiting for due process in the judicial system to play itself out. We're talking about a guy that's a depth piece for the Florida Gators. This isn't Philippi Franks. This isn't you know someone that's really going to make a difference on this team. So 
for people to say, oh, we're just protecting players so they'll play, that's, that's kind of nonsense. I would never and, say and that. He, but I do yeah. think he's a pretty good player. He showed up in the spring. He did a really nice job in the spring and really turned a lot of heads. But to your point, I agree. Uh, I don't. I don't think Mullen and company are protecting anybody. I think. I, I think in in Mullen's defense, man, you in this day and age, you have to let things go and run their course, and let whether it's an investigation, whether you're trying to secure more or or additional information in some situations. I do think that that's just something that you have to do in this day and age. And look, guys. It, it, I, I, no one's trying to, no one's trying to give these guys a pass. I'm not trying to do that, but whether you like it or not, it's a, he said, she said thing. And those can be the most difficult things to try and gather information on. Yeah. You know, it's a tough thing because, you know, the public sentiment of all of a sudden that narrative and that story got out that Florida has a culture problem and you get, you know, the drive by activists who like to, you know, they just read the headline and they're quick to jump on it with their 400,000 Twitter followers. Exactly. And, and all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, it's like having Al Sharpton come down when every time there's a, a problem with race and there's really nothing you can do about it. So, I, you know, it, it's a tough situation to, to handle it. Uh, you know, Mullen's first comments about it may not have been the most media savvy ones he could have had for it. He sounded a little aloof about the whole thing. Um, my thing is about Mullen, and I wonder if this kind of bleeds back to the Urban Meyer days. This is my one little concern about when he became the head coach is that, is he a guy and you're in the media and you, you deal with him and is, what's his relationship with the media? Is he someone, cause I know Urban was a guy that was pretty frosty. It seemed like and kind of rub people the wrong way if you're on his bad side. And he is kind of that direct descendant from Urban. I, I wonder when you see our stories going to be written in a negative way of, of Florida because people have a an axe to grind with Mullen. I mean, I could be completely wrong about this, but what's been your take both personally dealing with him and how he interacts with the media? I think he's like a lot of coaches right now. I think I think all coaches, I don't care who you are, across the board, they're 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 paranoid. They don't want too much information out there. They don't want to talk about injuries. They don't want to talk about suspensions. They don't want to talk about really a lot of things negative with the program. They would much rather talk about X's and O's. They'd much rather talk about player development. They'd much rather talk about uh, schemes and, and some of their philosophies and stuff like that. I, I think anywhere else, I think they're really – uncomfortable and I think that's Mullen too I really do I think I think he does a pretty good job with the media overall but I think there are a lot of things a lot of questions that he quite frankly isn't really willing to answer he doesn't want to divulge a whole lot of information put a whole lot of stuff out there but Mike that's not just Dan Mullen that's that's yeah. nearly every coach in America that's true and, and to go back to your last point about uh Matt Baker is, I agree with you. I don't think he's a gator hater necessarily, but I definitely think that he is trying to make a name for himself in this business. You know, and I think that stories like this and the Jameis Winston one help his profile. And there's a lot more, you know, he gets it. He gets to be on fine bomb and he gets, you know, his story picked up by ESPN and picked up everywhere when it's kind of a, a salacious slant a little bit to it. And uh, I think that's more of the case more than him being anti-Flora because, you know, you would see there's a history of his columns and reporting that goes back, you know, X amount of years. And you could say, well, you know, this guy doesn't like Florida. It's, it's obvious. And he would never last in a market like Tampa Bay if he was an anti-Florida guy. They'd run him out of town. Yeah, I think he's so the guy I, that I, likes to dig. And, and if he if he sees something that that he thinks – could be a story, mm-hmm. could be something that's going to require some digging. I think he's – I think that's very much Matt. Matt would like to get into that and like to uh, – much like he did with the Winston stuff. Uh, and I think he did a very good job and a very fair job covering Winston with that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely could see where Florida fans – and I feel the same way that, you know, it wasn't brought up – you know, he buried it towards the end of the article saying how they were all unrelated and how all the guys are no longer on the team with the exception at the time of the Huggins thing. But – uh 
that's something he's going to have to fight now is the perception he's anti-Gator. And it'll be interesting to see throughout the year what he writes going forward, how it's received, because I know there's a lot of, I think the hashtag going around today is block, block Matt Baker. And, you know, so I think it's just a, but, you know, that, that's not the only major issue I think we had in the offseason. I think the other problem, the concern we have is that, you know, we had a lot of people leaving in the, on the transfer portal. And we had guys who didn't qualify academically and never made it to campus. And we still have one guy who's still trying to get a visa situation figured out. And I think part of it, I think, is a little overblown for the reasons why. I mean, remember, this is Mullen's second year. And you see a lot of times players that were recruited from an old coach that maybe gave the new coach a year but is not a fit for the system and maybe just doesn't work with this coach. So I'm I'm not as overly concerned as some people are about how there's a culture problem, why some people are transferring out. But um, losing a quarter of your incoming class does kind of scare me a little bit, to be honest. They've lost a few, yeah. And look. The Dewan Black, uh, Hammond, you know, guys that ended up having R.J. Henderson, guys that didn't qualify or, or went JUCO in the case of Black and Hammond. Um, there were a lot of other schools that offered those kids too. So yeah. when you see those fans that uh, from those other schools, ah, look at Florida can't even get guys qualified. They're going after guys aren't that can't even qualify. Well, guess what? Your school offered them too. <laughs> let's yeah. don't let's let's not pretend that you didn't. Uh, and also, with regards to the Chris Steele thing, that's just very unfortunate. But it can happen from time to time if you're going to recruit kids from California or Texas or wherever it may be. Um, that that's just very unfortunate because he was a kid that really showed up in the spring and did a nice job. Uh, you had some others leave the program as well. Some uh, it's a positive that they left. Antonius Clayton was fighting to try and get uh, in there. He didn't make it. Uh, Kylan Johnson was probably a guy that had dropped down in the linebacker group. TJ McCoy had fallen down on the offensive line. So I'm going back a little bit. I realize that Nick Villano, uh, offensive lineman who probably wasn't going to get much. And, and you, you understand stuff like that. Rashad Jackson. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, it, it's going to be key for Florida to – to really shore up some of those positions, especially offensive line, interior defensive line, uh, defensive backfield, wide receiver. I mean, those are key positions of need when you're talking about the 2020 recruiting class. And, and, and again, I, I agree. I think that's, that is – and I'm not trying to dismiss off-the-field behavior. But I think that is equally, if you're looking at the football program as a whole, that's just as important a part of the discussion as anything else. Because, look, I mean, Hammond and Black, Steele, those were three guys that probably would have all seen the field this year uh, for the Gators. Um, They really would have. And Henderson, who knows? Who knows what could have developed there? Yeah, I mean, that's the difference of making that class, you know, a top – potential top five class to, you know, all of a sudden another thing that Matt Baker did, I think that annoyed a lot of Gator fans is he tweeted out that, you know, after Henderson didn't qualify, our class all of a sudden is now the 18th would be the 18th ranked class in the country last year, even though he didn't take into account people didn't qualify for other schools and people that transfer out of other schools also. Um, But, you know, I think Mullen's a guy he showed last year, um, he will use the transfer, transfer portal to his advantage. I mean, Van Jefferson and Trayvon Grimes are guys that we use to, you know, with the transfer portal to get in. You know, I, I don't think that now that the transfer portal is you know, uh, uh, so much more accessible to players and, you know, what a joke it is now to get waivers that, you know, even if your class may not be the strongest class and you miss on somebody right away, who knows? A target you may have been really going for, you didn't get, might be available in six months or a year or two years. So that's something we have to kind of watch really carefully. He had a good year last year with the transfer portal. Let's see what happens going forward. And don't freak out every time somebody transfers out. See how he brings in as well. Look, Brenton Cox Jr., 
the first five star in the program under in the Dan Mullen era. Uh, that's a enormous get for the University of Florida. Um, you hope that he fits in. That that you know, number one, the young man matures and certainly it embraces the program and Dan Mullen and the staff. Certainly the same thing for uh, for uh, you know Jonathan Greenard has, has been a tremendous addition to the group. Uh, Adam Schuler, you may have mentioned him a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. What, what a terrific addition he's been. So, and, and these are guys that are too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you're right. I mean, Cox is a guy that Mullen recruited at Mississippi state. He admitted Mullen that he knew they had no shot of getting him at Mississippi state. He becomes, you know, he's one of the top 30 players in the country last year, goes to Georgia and you know something? The narrative that Florida can't keep anybody, people are transferring out. How many five stars have transferred out of Georgia in the last three years? I mean, between, they've had more five star quarterbacks seem to leave, guys like Cox leave. It's not like, you know, I always say when, when signing day happens, everyone's like, oh, Florida State won signing day or Georgia. It's like, talk to me in four years what that class is. And Georgia, for all that they brought in, have lost a lot of blue chip talent as well. Yeah, look, um, with regard to guys leaving the program and and how a class may rank now versus what it was uh, in February, that that's all baloney to me. Um, you can't rank any class and, and justify it honestly, unless you're doing it probably three years down the road. That, that, 20, that's the truth. Yeah, 24-7 has a really good ranking. It's called like their composite ranking of talent. So what they'll do is like as of last November, they will rank all the players that are still on the roster at that given moment. So if Georgia had 25 people in the class of 2017, but only 14 are left in 2019, it just aggregates their stars and whatever – freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, and gives them a signed ranking. And that, to me, is the closest you can do to quantify, you know, what a class is at the time they came in. You know, obviously, three-star guys can become All-Americans, and five-star guys can be total busts, but it's the most accurate gauge you can of the talent that came in. And based on that last year, to tell what kind of a joke Willie Taggart is at Florida State, Florida State had the number five team in the country for aggregate star ranking of their four classes coming into the Florida State game last year. And that team was a disaster. So stars matter, but they're not the end-all, be-all of everything. Yeah, they're not. And, and you know, honestly, that should be attached to staff and staff development. That's hard mm-hmm. to do. That's hard to do. But but I think you you look at, at what, what – can you imagine what Dan Mullen and his staff's – star rating would be or, or score rating would be in terms of player development. If you look at how players at various positions developed, uh, it would be through the roof. It really would be uh, going from last year to this year. And, and look, a big part of that is your starts at your strength and conditioning program, which I think so many Gators actually are thrilled with right now with the job that Nick Savage has done. Certainly Dan Mullen is. I would say Nick Savage is probably, would you say, the third or fourth most popular coach we have right now after Mullen, uh, probably after Hevesy, I would think. I think Hevesy's, he gets more. I love Hevesy. He's I think Hevesy might be the second most popular coach we have right now, and I think Savage is third. I mean, I think, he, I think he's more popular among Gator fans than, than Tom Grantham is right now. Yeah, just the yeah. fact they love the what he's done. He, the results are very tangible. Just look at some of these guys. You know how their bodies have been shaped after one and two years in the program. It's one of those things where if uh, you know Will Greer doesn't get suspended and ultimately leaves the program, McAway might still be our coach, and this program might be rotting from within even deeper than it is right now. Yeah, I had a former Gator. A guy from many, many years ago, played in the 70s uh, at the University of Florida, and he told me, he goes, man, I would love to play for John Hevesy. He goes, that guy's old school, and I would love to play for that guy, and and I can't blame him. Uh, Let's uh, take a turn and start talking about some things that are 
going on right now, and that is Florida-Miami. And look at some of the things that are going on. Now, obviously, talking about guys that that aren't with the team, Noah Banks, offensive lineman, uh, unfortunately, Juco All-American, kid out of Pensacola, redshirt senior, no longer with the team, had issues with epilepsy. He's not there. Uh, David Reese, the redshirt freshman, uh, outside backer, defensive back, whatever you want to call him, out of Vero Beach, I guess the outside backer, suffered an Achilles tear. Now, obviously, don't confuse him with our uh, our senior David Reese, a senior All-SEC linebacker. Uh, but the younger David Reese out. C.J. McWilliams, a tough Achilles tear as well. I got to be honest with you. I didn't think he'd be with the program. I thought that's, that's a kid who's probably, since he was beginning his redshirt junior year, would go somewhere else and would be able to to make a move to another program and probably step right in as a starter. But he's still with the program. Unfortunately, he won't be with the Gators when the Achilles tear as well. So that sets the table for guys who won't be here. We don't know which guys are going to be suspended for the Miami game. There are rumors out there that there are going to be a couple. That may very well be the case. Dan Mullen will not talk about it, said that information would be released on Saturday. Furthermore, injuries, another issue, uh, another area where Dan Mullen will not discuss. Um, So injuries, and and we know that that Jean Delance, the uh, Gators' right tackle, projected right tackle, was on crutches a few days ago. Will, will he play against the Miami Hurricanes? We don't know. There are a lot of oars on the depth chart. By the way, that's not an official depth chart the Florida Gators gave us. That's an unofficial depth chart. So we'll see what happens, but a lot of unknowns still. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Uh, the, the Lance thing is very interesting because, you know, that may just reshuffle the offensive line that's, you know, going to play against Miami. And, you know, when we talk about this season as a whole, I think, I think you agree with me when we're saying with our starting 22, you know, our starting offense and defense, that is a, that's, a, you know, two units I think that can compete for a playoff spot. However, once you dig deeper on the offensive line, the defensive backfield, it's very thin. And if those injuries start, we can go from potential playoff to Citrus Bowl really, really quickly. Uh, Miami is one of those defenses where we're going to be just about completely healthy with the exception of the Lance. We don't know what his story. Nick Buchanan, I think, had a, was a little dinged up also, but I think he's, he's going to be fine. Um, but the suspensions, I, I got a question for you, Mark. We were debating this this past weekend, me and some friends of mine. Do you think that Florida should suspend when there the suspensions that come out over what happens over the course of an off season? Should they always be given out on the first game, regardless if we're playing a directional school or a Miami or a Michigan, or should they be in the best interest of the team doled out in a time where it's not going to ultimately affect the team? I would do it to start the season. I think um, setting that tone and letting guys know, look, it's going to be, it's going to be hard because you're, you're going to be out the first game. You're, you may be out the second game. You may be out the third game. I, I think that's a better uh, attention getter with kids in terms of behavior. I would think it would be. Now, again, when I was a kid and what these kids are thinking these days, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, this is a tough thing, and I've been really been struggling with this the last couple of years where – I love the fact that, you know, Florida can take the high ground, the high moral ground over a Florida State or a Georgia where you know they're not – if they're playing, you know, Florida State's playing damn in a kickoff classic, they're not suspending anybody, and they're going to wait till they play some scrub. Uh, you know, it's great to be that moral ground, but if all these other schools aren't doing it and we're suspending key players for the first game and we're playing a Miami or we're playing a Michigan – or if we're playing a Texas in, in several years now or something. Do we want to put the program in a disadvantage with other schools? And I don't know what that right answer is anymore. To me, it was always like, well, we're Florida. You know, we're better than these schools. But I feel like we're at a disadvantage if all of a sudden, you know, what if uh, Van Jefferson's one of those guys and he's out for the Miami game? 
and we lose because of that, is that more harmful for the program than saying you're going to sit the second game, you're still going to not play in one of one of 12 games? I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is anymore. I'm not as clear-cut as I used to be on it. Yeah, I, I, I just don't like that. I think you suspend them. It, look, if, if they make a mistake, you suspend them first game up, second game up if you have to um, as, as well, you know, depending on, on the nature of it. I just think you go that route myself. I would rather see that happen. I know Bobby Bowden, it used to be a popular thing for Bowden when uh, certain players got in trouble that he wouldn't, if they had a big game to open the season, he would suspend them in game two, not game one, uh, much to what kind of the point you're making. But yeah. I never really like that myself. Oh, I don't like it either. But my, my only point is if we're the only school that's doing it and nobody else seems to be doing it anymore, are we kind of like, on our high horse, but falling behind other schools. I mean, if it was up to me, I'd just been in first game also. And, you know, I would hope that other schools would, but it's been very obvious that other schools cut corners. And maybe it's for suspensions. Maybe it's, I don't know, fancy cars driving around campuses with players. You know, maybe it's academic standards aren't as good as what ours is. You know, I love the fact that we can say that in an argument, but... I don't want to fall behind these other schools either because I do still want to win as well. Yeah. It's not an easy it's not an easy moral decision you have to you have to think about and I don't really, you know, it's just something that's been popping up more and more. Yeah. Yeah, we'll never answer that question. Let me ask another question, Mark. It's not really re- sort of related but a little different tangent. Do you like playing teams like Miami and Michigan in a kickoff game or would you rather play scrub to start a season? I'd rather play a big game typically to start a season. Um, I think I think I think it just gets everybody excited. Now, there are years where you're awfully glad you're playing a nobody to start the season, but you know, I, I typically I, I just like the big game. I just think the big game's a lot of fun, and and now we're in the Mullen era. I. I would love to see it. I, I think uh, you have to have one of those small schools on your schedule. I don't. I'm not in favor of having two and three on there, but I think for the game of college football, it's good to have one of them. On there. I I 100% agree with you. I I love the fact that we're playing a meaningful game to start the season and have it be Miami. I mean, yeah, to me, it's like, like a, it used it's to a, be. It's a bowl game that counts. I mean, yeah. bowl games bowl games are fun, but at the end of the day, they're meaningless. Uh, when you're playing, you're getting ready for six months. Now, when we were playing Southwest Louisiana first game of the year, you're excited because it's the first game, but I'm not worrying about our offensive line against you know the Raging Cajuns or something. This makes it you know intriguing and exciting, and it means we're relevant, too. Nobody wants to see garbage teams at the start of the season. They want to see the good teams. So, th- th- to me, it- it's a no-brainer. I mean, Mark, we only play 12 games a year. Yep. We only play seven home games a year. To, you know, and it's not cheap to spend a weekend in Gainesville and part of your season ticket package to watch us play Idaho or some directional where you know they're going to win a thousand to nothing, and you know the starters aren't playing more than a quarter and a half. I mean, every the one thing I love about college football more than any other sport, and the only thing it possibly compares is English soccer. Is that the national championship is not the end-all, be-all in college football. You can win your conference. Rivalries matter. You know, we were awful playing Florida State. Florida State was awful last year playing us. It didn't matter. It was a rivalry game. There's other things to play for than just saying, oh, I'm not going to win the national championship. Who, who cares? We play a tough game the first game of the year and we lose it. Okay, maybe we're not on track to win the national title, but there's so much more to play for in college football. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. So to me, whenever you're an opportunity to play, you know, we're playing Texas in a home and home in Colorado and Miami, when it works out, I'm all for it every time. Yeah, I am too. I am too. But I also say, and we may disagree on this. You have to play one of those small schools to keep good for the game of college football, good for your local uh, kids who get to go play in those small schools and get to come into the big stadium and, and get that opportunity. I mean, right now we're at, believe it or not, we are at 775 col- universities and colleges playing college football right now. 
according to the National Football Foundation, 775. So that's a lot of kids that get to go play. When the small schools play the big schools, um, the, the major powers, that's a big payday for them, and it's a big part of their budget. And I think that's good for the game of college football. But I'm not in favor of seeing them play three of those games, for goodness sakes. Or, you know, honestly, even two, I think, can be is, is, is a bit too much. But anyway. Yeah, you know, my answer to that is maybe if the NCAA and these the conferences weren't so greedy, they could be a little more equitable with all that TV money that's coming in. You know, the playoff generates so many millions of dollars. These these deals with ESPN and CBS and SEC Network, ACC Network, Big Ten Network, all these things, there is so much money out there. And, you know, the fact that a school has to prostitute itself by going up to Florida and getting whipped 83 to nothing just so they can get a paycheck, you know, it's... I see where they need the money to support all the other athletic programs that they have in a school, and I get that. But to me, the NCAA is such a hypocritical organization and a, a selfish organization that that money could be, you know, they could do what their charter really is and really support all of these universities across, you know, FCS, FBS, Division Two, Division Three, without having to do this sort of masochistic thing of going to, you know, playing at a, at a Florida or an Ohio State or something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I see your point. I see your point, and I, I agree with that. There, There's more that they could certainly do, I have to believe, but, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think at some point, whether it's going to be in five years, ten years, or twenty years, I think you're going to see the Power Five conferences ultimately split from the NCAA and be their own thing, sort of like what happened, you know, with the Premier League in, in, in England uh, 40 years ago, where they basically split from the football uh, league or whatever, how it's set up in England, and they do their own thing. They have their own TV money, and they do their own thing. Because I, at some point, the haves and have-nots are just going to get too wide of a thing, and the haves are not going to want to pay the have-nots anything. And now that scheduling means something for the playoffs, you're not going to see, you know, the cupcakes as much as you used to. I mean, no, we're getting away from the not. cupcakes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're 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 playing the, you know, the neutral site games now, and we're we're doing the home and homes, which we never would have done, you know, twenty thirty years ago. And, you know, those opportunities for the smaller schools to play the bigger schools are going to drop and drop and drop. So, you know, at some point they're going to say we're not paying for you guys anymore. If that's not our problem anymore. Yeah, it could so, happen. It could happen. It could. All right, let's let's get into Florida Miami. Um, as we look at this game, look look, this comes down. What are the? the let's go through a few keys. Mm-hmm. Number one key. This is going to come down to the offensive line of both teams. We touched on the Florida offensive line. If, for example, Jean Delance is not able to go at right tackle, what you're probably going to see is Stone Forsyth move to right tackle from left tackle and Richard Goriage uh, line up at left tackle. That would give the Gators projected two redshirt freshmen on the starting unit because you got to believe Chris Bleich is probably uh, earmarked to play that right guard position alongside Nick Buchanan. And then, of course, Brett Hagee would be the other starting guard. So a good group for the University of Florida, but a group, you know, as I've talked to John Hevesy with other members of the media, I've asked him one thing that I know all coaches like to talk about, and that is where are you in terms of communication? He told me three weeks ago, I like where we are with communication with the first unit. The second unit's got some things to work on. But the first unit, I like where we are in communication. I like what I see in our terms of our effort. He, he seemed really pleased with the first unit. Second unit, not so much. There's there's a lot to work out there, and you can imagine there is because there's a lot of freshmen there. Remember, Florida is really probably another year or two away from getting that offensive line where they'd like it. Probably two. And I say that because, what do you have, seven, eight freshmen or redshirt freshmen on this offensive line right now? You have Goriage, you have Ethan White, Riley Simmons, 
uh, Igakin, Griffin McDowell, Chris Bleich, uh, we'll, Will Herod. We'll see what happens with Mordrick Wilson and the visa issues. And Michael Tarkman. So that, that's a lot of freshmen slash redshirt freshmen in this group. It's going to be an awfully young group in terms of classification next year. Now we'll see how many of those guys get playing time this year. But uh, you got to feel pretty good about the potential for the offensive line in 2020. And then, goodness gracious, 2021 could be really big because Florida's going to sign four or five kids in this upcoming class coming up. Now, one other thing I want to mention about the offensive line. Just listening to Dan Mullen and John Hevesy through August, it's very interesting to listen to them answer questions and see how confident they are. They sound very confident in what their belief of, of what this offensive line could be. So there's not a lot of, oh, woe is me, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. You're not hearing that from Hevesy, and you're not hearing that from Dan Mullen with regards to the Florida offensive line. By the way, a Florida offensive line that's going up against a an outstanding group of linebackers at Miami and a very good defensive line. It's a very good defensive line that did a very, very bad job last year against the run. Yep. And was it four of their five leading tacklers from last year are no longer – moved on to the NFL or graduated. So I, if we were just a pure pocket um, passing offense, I'd be concerned. The fact that, you know, we're going to try to run the ball right down their throat. I think now that Philby Franks has shown in the last four or five games of last year that he's not afraid to run the ball, uh, the speed we have on the outside, I think that negates a lot of, what Miami's strength is. It's edge rushing and those linebackers rushing. And, you know, again, against LSU, they ran the ball down their throat. And they weren't quite the running team that they were in previous years. That three-game slide against really bad teams last year, against, I think it was Duke and, you know, whoever else they lost to, teams ran at will against them. And, you know, this is the best running attack they're probably going to see this whole year coming up. So, again, if we were playing this game in late October and we had two starting offensive linemen that were out and we had, you know, nicked up and and banged up around, I'd be much more concerned. The fact that we're as healthy as we're going to be this year with a, you know, I'd say an unproven but pretty talented group of offensive linemen I'm not as concerned about that. My key to the game is the fact that we're looking at a a quarterback from Miami who has never started before with a brand new offensive coordinator and a offensive line that was far worse than ours was is coming into this year. I just can't see how Miami's going to move the ball. And I see this turning into one of those games where field position means everything. I, I, if, if it's a situation where they're constantly either threeing outing or they're not moving the ball at all and we're starting at midfield every possession, this game could get ugly really quick, I think. Uh, you know, A lot of people are saying they, they see the model like how the Florida State game and the uh, Michigan game was where it will be close early and then we just, you know, with the depth that we have, we just grind down the third and fourth quarter. I think this game could be put out of range really quickly by – Mistakes made by an inexperienced quarterback, a bad offensive line. Uh, I, I try to analyze this game everywhere I can. I just don't see a roadmap of where Miami can win this game. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, I'm with you. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, mm-hmm. I, want, I want to finish my point about the Florida offensive line. Look, mm-hmm. um, you're going up against that Miami defense, and that, that is a good defense. But mm-hmm. – they should be better. They're another year into the program. Uh, things are different now. But to your point, Boston College ran for 223 and two touchdowns against them. Georgia Tech ran for 230 and two touchdowns on them. Wisconsin ran for 333 yards and four touchdowns against them. So 
I, I agree with you that uh, those guys may have been a bit overrated last year. But as you said, some of those guys have moved on. Now you've got some different guys there. It's going to be interesting to see how an inexperienced, largely inexperienced Florida offensive line goes against that group. Uh, to your point, as you moved on to, to, to your key, and I agree with your key, look, here's the problem with the Miami offensive line. Zion Nelson, a freshman at left tackle, no major D1 offers. His biggest offer, Appalachian State. Redshirt freshman right tackle, John Campbell. Redshirt sophomore center, Corey Gaynor. Only Minnesota, the only other D1 program that offered him. Redshirt freshman offensive guard, Cleveland Reed. The only other SEC offer he had, Florida. Back under the McElwain era. And then sophomore DJ Scaife. Only one major D1 offer, Miami. So, look, and again, I've just said freshman, redshirt freshman, redshirt sophomore, redshirt freshman, sophomore. I'm with you. That Florida defensive front, particularly Zaninga, Greenard, Zach Carter, Adam Schuler, those guys should tee off on that bunch at Miami, particularly just as you said, with a redshirt freshman in Williams who's never taken a snap at quarterback. And Florida should have their way with them, particularly with C.J. Henderson, Marco Wilson, who's got to shake a little bit of rust off. So it'll be interesting to watch him. And then certainly Trey Dean at the the, uh, uh, nickel position in coverage against these guys. I'm with you. I think Florida wins this game by two touchdowns minimum, and I think it's going to be very difficult. And it better be very difficult for Miami to get anything going offensively, even though I'm a big fan of Dan Enos. I think Dan Enos does a really nice job as an offensive coordinator. But i got to believe that, that, that Dan Enos is looking at this. That Manny Diaz is looking at this and going, this is not an ideal matchup for us in game one. Well, it's just like the Michigan game where you have a young quarterback in Philip e. Franks exactly. who's his first major start, and we saw what happened when there was a pass rush on him. He, you know, if he doesn't see his first read, he's screwed. And we could see the exact same thing happen with this. Uh, you know, we'll see the Grantham defense. We'll see guys on the outside coming, you know, He'll come full barrel. You'll see corner blitzes. You'll see all sorts of exotic stuff that uh, a quarterback like him has never seen before at the college level. And this is where you can see, you know, the little outpass being a quick pick six, you know, in territory. You know, I, I don't see them. I see it being a, a very conservative game plan to begin with because, again, you know, the familiarity with snaps and signs and everything and just, you know, Nobody knew this guy was going to be the starting quarterback a week and a half ago. And which makes me also think, don't think that Tate Martell might not be in the game at halftime or earlier if the offense isn't doing anything. I mean, I think he'll have a very, very short leash. And I wouldn't be surprised if, even if the score is close, let's say the score is 7 nothing or 7-7 seven, seven or close, you might see a very quick hook for him. Yeah, I think Nikosi so, Perry is the first guy coming in. Who? Nikosi, I mean, as Nikosi, um, uh, he's coming in first. Oh, see, I think Martell is. I, 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 I still think, think they're so. playing a little bit of possum with him as far as what he's going to do. I've, you've heard the talk that he might be come playing a little receiver or something. I think he's going to be in the bullpen ready to go. If not, you know, I don't know what his future is at Miami. He may be gone by October. What's the point of him being there? Well, I. Mark, I lost you. Oh, sorry. Okay. Here you go. You're back. You're yeah, back. I think it's negotiator. I think he'll be the first guy coming off that bench helping him. And they may be playing coy uh, with the whole, well, we're, we're talking about Tate Martell to go to the wide receiver. You know, that, that may, may just be a bunch of talk. So we'll see. I don't know. 
Yeah. Uh, but like I said, I, I think this is a game going to be a field position battle because I don't expect them to, I think they're going to be very conservative in their play calling. I don't see much of anything working. And, you know, if, if you see mid first quarter on, we're starting at midfield and they're starting in the 10, 15 yard line, every possession, mm. this game will be a route. Well, I, I, look, I, I think if Florida rushes for 200 yards, it'll be a route. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also wouldn't panic if at halftime the score is fourteen ten or something or yeah. or something close, I think that uh, you know I think like people were saying a lot of it because like the Florida State Michigan uh, model of play close and then just take care of business second half. The one thing I do want to see this year, and it's one of my keys to the season, is I want to see better starts in this offense than we've had for the last couple of years. Honestly, and this goes back to McElwain. You know, that first drive with the three and out, or, you know, we score seven points in the first quarter. You know, if you remember going back to the, you know, the, uh, the Urban Meyer Mullen days, it was a race of 21 points, and then you just rely on the defense and, and ball control and, and don't let them get back in the game. Seeing this team with significant leads early is going to make that defense even better, and you can lean more on that running game and the rotation of, of running backs that we have and wear down the other team's defense. So that's, that, that could be one of the best things that helps this offensive line going forward is tired defenses. So one of the things I'm going to be looking at for sure in the first couple of games this year is, are we jumping off to, you know, are we scoring 14 points in the first quarter? Are we moving the ball in and setting up um, field position? Something we weren't doing a very good job of last year. Yeah. Well, Hevesy indicated that the offensive line for Florida was looking pretty good. They were ahead in the run game. A uh, little more work to be done on pass protection, which is fine. But look, you go back, you look at the 2018 season, there were four games where Florida didn't rush for 200 yards or more. Kentucky, Georgia, Missouri, there's a common theme in all three of those they lost. Yeah. Uh, the one they, they didn't go for 200, yet they won, was Mississippi State. So, again, as Hevesy said, as goes this offensive line, so goes the offense, and he's right. Uh, because that's Florida, what Florida wants to do, to your point, is they're going to wear people down, and that's what they, they, they should do. I still think there's more explosiveness, and the coaches have touched on this, the players have touched on this. There's a lot more explosiveness in this offense with regards to the wide receivers, with regards to Michael Piran catching the ball out of the backfield, and really, my other key, the tight ends. Those tight ends are key to this because – there's going to be a lot of emphasis on keying on the Florida's outstanding wide receivers, but look out, look out for Kyle Pitts, look out for Lucas Kroll and Kamari Gamble and some of those guys because I think those guys are very underappreciated and underrated by the national media at, at, in terms of tight ends. So that's my, one of my other keys. Circle that with a red pin. Look out for those tight ends. That's the best way you neutralize linebackers crashing the blitz all the time is they have to they have to guard tight ends who can catch the ball. And you got exactly. two good tight ends who can catch the ball. And when you're worrying about these speedsters and you're worrying about, you know, the possession guys like the Van Jeffersons, the uh you know, the over the top guys like Grimes, and then you have, you know, the uh the Copelands. We're talking about a guy like Jacob Copeland who's kinda of like number six on the depth chart and the guy who could potentially you know, be one of the best receivers on any other team in the country. There's so much depth. I mean, don't expect to see anybody on this team having 90 catches for 1,500 yards. You're going to see balance and spread out across everybody. If this offensive line can give the passing game enough time to have Franks go to his main read, look at his second read, you know, you, you worry about him having to run the ball now. It's a, it's a threat. The, the running game is going to be the, the rock of this offense. Offensive line stays healthy. This team can make a playoff run. I, I really do think so. Um, even if they lose to a Georgia, but uh, it's, it's all the key this season is health. And if we go into a run of injuries, like we've had in the last couple of years, you know, we'll be in Tampa in the Outback bowl. But if we stay relatively healthy, sky's the limit for this team. Well, uh, there, there's certainly some other, Keys 
that we should be watching this, and one is the development of Felipe Franks. Dan Mullen said the other day something very interesting, Mike. He said, look, Felipe Franks has developed more from January to current than he did throughout the entire 2018 season. And he was talking about off the field, on the field, and that is big for Florida because the one thing that they wanted to address, too, with Felipe during the spring was accuracy. And we, the media, got to see enough practice sessions to where we could safely say that we did see an improvement in Felipe Franks' accuracy, which was uh, certainly a significant portion. You go through the 2018 campaign, and in those last four games, Felipe Franks was at 65, completing 65% of his passes. That was not the case in the previous eight games. So he really did turn it up. Now, we all get that Idaho was one of those opponents. Florida State was another. We get all that. South Carolina, Michigan. But still, uh, there's some pretty good DBs that he went up against uh, uh, and threw against during those four games stretched to uh, close out 18. Accuracy is accuracy. I mean, if he – I think it was – was it Swain? or who? I forget who it was who he overthrew in that first series in the Georgia game. If he hits that pass, there might be a completely different narrative of what happens the rest of the game and the rest of the season last year. Sure. And that was just that was just throwing against air, and he just missed him. Uh, my thing with Franks is going to be, you know, that's all good, and I, I love hearing how mature he got in the offseason, and there's a certain amount of coach speak to that. Is I want to see what happens the first time he gets hit in the mouth and the first time he throws three incomplete passes, because he is an emotional guy. We've seen it. We've seen it with the shushing. We've seen him be frustrated when things aren't going well. He's had, he's laid some Jeff Driscoll, Trayon Harris eggs in his time at, at Florida. I want to see what happens if he starts off a game against a Miami or against a, even a Tennessee or something where he's two of six to start a game. Can he bounce back? Does he have the mental toughness he might not have had last year when a Kentucky team blew us out when he played awful or the Missouri game where, you know, he gets benched? You know, he's going to have a lot, lot longer leash now. He's the leader of this team. But until we see it on the field when he hits some adversity, that's going to be the biggest change for me. You know, if he can fight through it, great. Then we have a quarterback who can be in that second tier of, SEC greatness of quarterbacks, you know, behind from and behind Tua. I mean, right now I think he's right up there with uh, LSU's quarterback and A and M's quarterback. But he has to prove that he can. There's no more egg layings like he, like he had last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's going to be interesting. Interesting to see what happens as as we go forward. So looking forward to it. Do you want to make a do you want to make a quick prediction on the game and where do you think the Gators' record will be at the end of the season? Sure. So everybody can make sure. everybody can make fun of us in uh, in December how wrong we were. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what Let's, do you think? Um, I think Florida beats Miami again by fourteen or more. I will go. Wow, I'll go thirty-one to thirteen. Um, okay. As, as far as the season goes, I can see Florida going nine and three or ten and two. Um, yeah, depending on how again how that offensive line develops and how they stay healthy. But I can make a case for either one. You're going to make me pick one. Oh wow! Um, wow. Um, you're just talking about the regular season. I will go regular season. Yes. Wow, there's something that says go nine and three. Uh, who's the third loss? Um, I'll go. T- I'm going to go ten and two. I'll go optimistic and go ten and two. I'm going to say we are going to beat Miami. I'm going to say twenty-seven ten. However, there is a greater likelihood that this thing could be a blowout than it being closer or a loss. I, I, I really feel that. Uh, you know, if Miami 
was wearing Vanderbilt's uniforms, the spread would be doubled than it is right now. Because I think this Miami team is like a good Vanderbilt team where it has a good defense but has next to nothing on offense. And I think the only reason why the spread is as close as it is and why you know some of the talking heads think Miami has a shot to win this game is because, well, they're Miami. And because they've beaten us five times in the last you know, 30 years, that's supposed to mean anything. I don't think this team is very good. And I think the national media knows it as well. They're not ranked. Nobody's picking them to win a, a, a terrible side of the ACC. I, I think there's a lot of work to be done with this team. I don't know if they made the right choice with their head coach. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, you know, because he's with the program, this is a guy that was supposed to be the head coach at Temple. Temple. And now all of a sudden, one day later, he's the head coach at Miami. Um, I would not be surprised, Mark, if you see some real shenanigans from Miami before the game starts, whether it's they try to stomp on the Gator logo or they bring the entire team out to the you know the coin toss to try to intimidate. I think you're going to see all those little dirty tricks that you see these other teams do to try to gain an intimidation factor. Let's see how poised and mature the Gators are, and they can ignore all that nonsense. I don't want to see a Doug Johnson throwing a, a ball at a coach like we've seen in the past. We get past all that nonsense. I think we roll. Um, for the season, I want to say this team is better than last year. I just, my fear is injuries and my fear is depth. Um, I think, and the biggest thing for me after the, the, the depth issue is, is this team good enough? physically, mentally, experience-wise, where there are no more games like Missouri game, no more games like the Kentucky game, where at home we just don't show up and where a quarterback goes four for 16 and stupid turnovers and high penalties and losing games we have no business losing. You know, Georgia's going to be tough. We know that. LSU going there is going to be tough. I think Auburn's very overrated the game they should win. All these other games are lined up we should win. It's just, if we don't play that, you know, lay an egg game, and the, we could stay, for the most part, healthy, no, no, lose too many guys in the, in the secondary, lose too many offensive linemen, I think we can go 10-2 and two again. And But, you know, we start, you know, three or four offensive linemen go down. Marco Wilson's not what he was before. We another one or two injuries back there, we could be, you know, three or four losses, you know, doesn't mean we're not a better team than last year or the program is still headed in the right direction. It's just, it's the kind of way it's going to be. So I'm going to stick, I'm going to say injuries do happen. I think we're going to be nine and three, but I think this team could be better than it was last year, even though the record may not be as good. Well, that's where I'm at. Nine and three, 10 and two. Uh, so she went nine and three. I'll definitely stick with 10 and two. And we'll, we'll go with that. Hey, sounds good, and we'll uh, we'll play this back in December, and we'll see how uh, how right or wrong we really were. Any, all right, sounds good. Any final thoughts as we go? No, I'm just uh, I'm I'm really glad football is back. You know, like I said, just the top of the show. This has been a long off season. It's been a lot. silly season is finally over, and the best thing that Dan Mullen can do to promote this program is do what he did last year is say this is not, you know, your father's Florida Gators where under McElwain and Muschamp, the offense was painful to watch. And we'd, and even when we did win, it was ugly to see. We finally saw a playmaker playing an offense, a coherent plan. Uh, so the best thing, like I said, Mullen can do to promote this program is the 12 games we play. We'll deal with the off seasons as they come. But uh, I love the fact we're playing week before everybody else uh, you know, the, it, this is setting up to be a huge showcase for this program. I think we're going to blow out a team that uh, is not very good. People are going to be watching it. And I think people are going to have a sense that, you know, everything that happened in the last nine years is washed away. And I like being overhyped personally. I think it's good for the program. I like that everybody talks about us. I don't, you know, it's up to the coaches to keep the players in check. But for me, I like seeing splashy headlines about it. It helps us in recruiting. So I'm just glad it's back, and uh, I'm, I'm ready I'm ready to fly out and get started in Orlando. 
There you go. I'm I'm not thrilled about Orlando. I'm not I don't like the stadium. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the stadium with all due respect to any of you in Orlando. Sorry, it's just not one of my favorite venues, but um yeah, I'm I'm glad that it's football season. I'm thrilled to uh to uh be a part of it. And uh Man, looking forward to seeing what happens. And honestly, I, I, this is going to sound weird. Mike, I'm a, I am a huge fan of the three-bye weekend that Florida gets uh, this, this season. I love the opportunity. That during the season, I'm going to have three opportunities to kind of take a break, go focus on other teams and, and other things and devote a lot of uh, focus on that uh, because I think that's important and, and I'm really looking forward to it. I love it, too, because, again, we've been talking about depth being an issue on this team, and they're strategically placed. One's right after the first game. You can give us two weeks to look at game film and assess what went wrong, what went right, get guys healthy. You're playing a scrub the week after. You know, you don't have to play your stars the whole game, so you're basically having almost a bye and a half before you get into you know the second game, the third game of the year, rather. Then you have one right before Georgia. Obviously, that's critical. That's that's our that's our SEC East Championship game right there. And then the last one is when's the last one before Florida State? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, but it's before Florida State, so you're rested and ready to go, so you can you you can whip the Seminoles. So it, it in a, in a year where depth is a big concern for us, having the extra bye week is really really going to come at a better time and a better season. I agree wholeheartedly. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the podcast, I know we uh, we went, ran a little long here, but uh, to get things going, uh, if you will, please listen to the show. Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock, you can find it at 965sports.com. That is 965sports.com. You can follow me on Twitter at McLeod Live. That's M-C-L-E-O-D Live. And certainly Mike will give you his information. But for all of you out there, we'll see you in Orlando. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. And if you will, pass it along to your Gator family members and friends. That's right, Mark. We are back. We'll be back weekly throughout the uh, the whole season with our reviews of the previous games and previews of upcoming games. Um, you can catch me, as always, on Twitter at the Cranky Fan. There's a lot going on right now. I am still in my nightly rants about my hopeless Tampa Bay Rays and obviously talk about Florida Gator football. You can also catch me on my companion podcast, the Just Giants podcast, where me and the football group talk all things New York Giant football. So um, if you are an extra special person who loves the Gators and the New York Giants, check us out. It's the Just Giants podcast also. Um, You can find this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We will be expanding where we are to be on all of the places you subscribe to podcasts. So if you get a chance, subscribe to us for free. Give us a five-star rating if you could, a nice review, and we really appreciate it. And uh, if you are going to be in Orlando this weekend, we will be pre-partying and tailgating at our tent. We'll be right outside uh, the stadium at Tinker Field. So if you want, you know, send me a note on Twitter at CrankyFan, find out where we are, and we will uh, – We'll have a beer together and get ready for the game. So we're looking forward to that. So for Mark McLeod, this is the Cranky Fan saying, Go Gators.